it's especially concerning for me because the way that remdesivir is being used is when the patient's discharged, the medication is discontinued. Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the October 7th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar can be found in the resource list window. Today's learning objectives are Describe effects of COVID-19 mitigation strategies on influenza activity. Discuss the challenges to clinicians in distinguishing between influenza and COVID-19. And describe the role of early use of influenza antivirals in reducing burden of influenza. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He will be interviewing Dr. Michael Eisen, Professor in the Divisions of Infectious Diseases and Organ Transplantation at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Allwater, Dr. Eisen, take it away. Thanks for having us. Yeah, and uh, really want to thank uh, Michael Eisen uh, from Northwestern for joining us. Uh, known Michael for years, and he's an uh, expert in respiratory uh, infections, especially viral, uh, especially in uh, patients that might have compromised immune systems. And, and importantly, also uh, was uh, the lead author on an important trial in influenza published in The Lancet uh, just recently on bulbloxivir compared to placebo and, and oseltamivir in the capstone 2 trial. So congratulations on that paper and uh, uh, really helpful for the field. So uh, with that introduction of COVID-19, we discussed in an earlier segment uh, but influenza is important, and I thought we could talk about some of the challenges that are coming up with this season. Uh, you know, uh, Anthony Fauci uh, had pointed to, and many others, to the experience in the Southern Hemisphere, Australia, Chile, uh, New Zealand, where the number of influenza cases in those countries, which are relatively well-tracked, were vastly lower. And uh, wondering what your, you know, is that something that you would agree that we might see a delayed, shorter, or milder influenza season with the pandemic superimposed? Yeah. So I think it's an it's a interesting question. Uh, you know, the low levels that we saw in many of the Southern Hemisphere countries were at a time where they were uh, doing a very good job of social distancing, uh, wearing masks, and, and doing the mitigation uh, strategies for COVID-19, which will work just as well for flu and other uh, respiratory viruses. 
the real question is, do we do it well enough to keep the numbers uh, low? I'm hoping that it will uh, give us a less severe uh, season than usual. But we have to keep in the back of our head that every year there's millions of clinic visits uh, nearly a quarter of a million hospitalizations and uh, over 35,000 deaths due to influenza. And if we add that to the burden that COVID-19 will uh, give to uh, uh, hospitals uh, in the middle of our flu season, we want to minimize that as much as possible because that could lead to overwhelming the healthcare system. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a good point. We'll just have to be vigilant. Uh, obviously, we can look at influenza-like illnesses. CDC has their flu view. And of course, we're all watching pandemic numbers as well. And the concern as we move indoors with uh, increased uh, activities. And speaking of influenza-like illness, I, I think one of the questions that maybe ID people, primary care, uh, probably just about everyone is going to be asking, well, you know, can we tell uh, influenza and the coronaviral infection apart? Sure, influenza comes on like a ton of bricks. Yes, coronavirus is a more gradual. Maybe there's loss of taste and smell. But the question, I, I, you know, and advice, uh, Michael, I'd ask is, how should people respond when someone has upper respiratory uh, symptoms, um, plus minus fever uh, this summer? Should everyone get tested? What should we do? Yeah, so I think one very useful resource is on the, the CDC Influenza uh, website. They have, under the diagnostic section, a really helpful flow sheet that really talks through which patient populations uh, uh, we should be testing in, and in which way. I think the key point, as you, you highlighted, is it's very hard to clinically differentiate flu from COVID-19, from RSV, or other respiratory viruses that circulate uh, during the fall, winter, and early spring. So our clinical capacity to differentiate the two is actually pretty, cha pretty challenged. And so we will need diagnostic uh, testing. I think this is where knowing what's going on in your community is uh, very helpful. If the rates of flu are high and the rates of COVID are low, you've got a pretty good uh, sense of uh, what the patient likely has. Whereas uh, if there's a mixed bag or mostly COVID-19, then you have to uh, worry about both of the uh, viruses. Their current recommendation from the CDC is that everyone being admitted to the hospital should have a full RVP panel plus COVID-19 testing. I think the thing that will help us out is that there are a number of uh, full uh, RVPs that have added uh, COVID-19 that hopefully will become clinically available to uh, hospitals uh, as we move into the winter months. For the outpatient setting, uh, really, uh, they do recommend still doing COVID-19 testing uh, for those patients presenting, uh, and then more limited uh, uh, testing focused more on flu and RSV. When you have that in your differential diagnosis and having that information would be helpful in uh, letting you decide whether to give the patient therapy or not. Um, but I think this year, more than prior years, uh, you know, people aren't going to be super comfortable just prescribing uh, an, a flu antiviral uh, and sending the patient home. They'll, they'll want to get some additional testing to make sure it's not COVID-19. Yeah, I, I think that's sort of interesting, of course, also because of the uh, CDC guidance, which I believe is still standing about not testing asymptomatic people. And uh, when someone is ill in a household or so on, uh, to me, I think it would be helpful to inform and therefore also hopefully alter that person's dynamics. I mean, 
we always tell people with influenza to stay home, right? <laughs> you know, don't go to work, these kind of things. And it's maybe even more important than ever uh, with COVID-19. But I, I think the message about testing, unfortunately, has also been politicized to some degree. And it's just difficult sometimes for people to always feel like they want to get a, a swab in the nose uh, uh, for so on. And I guess what I would ask about influenza testing uh, for example, is yes, there might be salivary testing, still not very widespread for COVID, uh, but is it really just the NP swab for influenza? I mean, are, are people still going to have to deal with the swab in the nose or, or, or is anything in the influenza field moving to salivary diagnostics or, or does that even hold up, uh, uh, for example, uh, like uh, it appears the coronavirus testing may? So I think the, the fact that there's a lot of interest in saliva, um, people are going to look at it for its ability to detect other viruses. Typically, it's dependent on the, the virus uh, that you are talking about. But oftentimes for flu and other uh, of the respiratory viruses, the yield in adults in the saliva is a little bit lower than in the nasal swab. So it probably will be uh, the, the swab in the nose. There, there's been a lot of effort, uh, you know, the NIH has uh, sponsored uh, a huge effort to get uh, updated and, and new uh, diagnostic modalities. And I think that the important thing is it's uh, getting people that may not have been focused on this area uh, to focus on it. So, uh, you know, hopefully there'll be some new uh, a discovery that'll give us something that uh, can really move things, uh, move the field forward. Um, I, I do think that, uh, you know, the point that you made uh, early on uh, is, is an important point just to remind uh, people. Um, the advice has always been, if you're not feeling well, stay at home. Um, by coming in, whether you have COVID, whether you have flu, whether you have other viruses, sharing it with other people, particularly this year where anxiety levels are going to be high and even someone that has a cold is going to think that they have COVID and have in the back of their mind, are they going to get admitted to the hospital and get very sick from a disease that's very scary to most uh, individuals? And I think it may not be obvious, but I think it's obviously a concern to you and I think to me. When the pandemic started, we were just moving into spring. We were just moving out of respiratory season. We initially saw flu much more commonly than COVID, but in a couple of weeks it transitioned and influenza went away. Now we're just going into respiratory season. And, and I don't think we've really experienced a respiratory season yet um, with this. And if you look at the, the data from China, they had a fair number of uh, patients that were co-infected with the flu and COVID-19 and they had, and likewise, if you look at people that were being admitted for rule out uh, COVID-19, they had a fair number of patients that had flu and other uh, respiratory viruses. And they were in December, January when you'd expect the peaks of uh, flu cases. And, and we should say this is by not this is not a unique phenomenon by any stretch. I mean, uh, co-viral infections, uh, you know, the Jane study and New England Journal and others uh, have really shown that this is much more frequent if you really apply these sophisticated and sensitive diagnostics than we suspect. Of course, how much is active versus shedding is always a good uh, uh, argument there. Now, uh, let's build on this a little bit because I'm interested. Um, if, if what your advice would be, someone's at home, maybe they're 30, they don't have any risk factors, no one else is really ill at home. And we know for influenza, it's an option if someone calls early enough to use antivirals. 
uh, under 48 hours. Uh, uh, but uh, what would you do in that circumstance? I mean, uh, uh, you know, the CDC has always said, well, we don't really want to use antivirals unless we have to. We don't want to do chemo prophylaxis unless if someone's at very high risk because we're concerned about the emergence of resistance. Uh, for example, with oseltamivir or, or perhaps uh, the newer agent. So um, just wanted to get your sense about use. Um, we haven't really seen significant oseltamivir resistance since 08 and 09. Uh, Japan is one of the biggest users in the world of oseltamivir. Rates are maybe 1% to 2% at best. Um, so should we really be limiting oseltamivir? Should we be as conservative about using? Obviously, there's cost issues too. Um, but what's your sense? Because I think people are probably going to want to be more liberal this year than in most years. Yeah. So, so just to clarify, both the IDSA guidelines and the, uh, the CDC guidance don't say don't treat uh, patients without underlying medical conditions. Oh, no, right. Yeah. No, no. Consider, consider to, to uh, uh, give them. So it's not strongly recommending them. It's up to the clinician's decision to, to treat or not. The way that I look at it um, is the... Therapy is associated with a shortening of the duration of illness. Everyone's focused on the one day of benefit if you start uh, within 48 hours. But there, there's great data that shows that if you're able to start really early, six to 12 hours after symptom onset, you can get up to three days of benefit in symptom resolution and four days of uh, re recovery to normal function. So there, there can be a significant benefit if it's uh, given um, early. And I would say when we, the, the clinician frequently will give a Z-pack for someone that has bronchitis. And really their goal there is to get the patient feeling better quickly. And so I don't understand why we uh, have a differential uh, approach uh, and comfort level with uh, antivirals from uh, antibacterials. The, the other issue uh, with regard to uh, resistance is that if the patient doesn't have influenza and you prescribe uh, oseltamivir, there's no resistance pressure applied to the virus. It's not like bacteria in the gut that are getting exposed to the antibiotic that the patient is given. The other issue is, is that the current guidance for most young healthy individuals is to use your clinical judgment and not need a test unless you feel that would uh, affect your decision making. Uh, and so again, there's, there's very little, I think, uh, downside to giving it. Additionally, these drugs are generally well tolerated. The most common side effect are GI side effects that can be ameliorated by uh, ensuring that they take the medication with food. Given that uh, maybe uh, people are not at high risk for uh, developing complications and so on, there may be difficulties getting people tested. There still are. Um, so if we were to treat someone empirically, as you said, you know there's seasonal influenza in your community, there's also COVID uh, and so on. Would a, uh, an option be treat someone and, and see in the next 48 hours, knowing the lag time with uh, coronavirus usually being a few days uh, there? Uh, not that's not really worked into any algorithm or anything, but just as a clinician, I I sort of wonder if someone calls me the first day or two of illness, I give them oseltamivir, say, look, if you're not feeling better in 48 hours, maybe we better get you a coronavirus test. Uh, you know, of course, they could have co-infections, as you point out too. Uh, but I'm just wondering, you know, practically, I don't think we're going to be able to handle everybody with testing and so on. Yeah, I think, I think the empiric approach is, is uh, very reasonable and, and probably something we need to think more about this uh, flu season because, again, if everyone with any respiratory virus comes in to see the doctor for a test, 
we don't have the number of appointments to be able to do that. Um, I do think, as I said, early treatment gets you the big, biggest bang for your buck. Uh, and so uh, prescribing the, the patients the, the medication early. And then I think in clear, clearly instructing the patients if they're not better um, at, within, I would say, 24 to 48 hours, as you suggested, to give a call back. If they're getting worse, clearly they need to come in for evaluation. But generally, particularly if you're catching uh, the flu very early uh, in the, the disease course, people feel markedly better very quickly. Uh, and if that's not the course, then it's probably not flu. One last issue. I know we're talking about influenza a lot in this COVID program, but I think it's going to be such an important player in this uh, respiratory season, especially if it's in your communities. I thought um, you might speak a little bit about if there are any advantages to combination anti-influenza therapy. And so what I mean is one of our neuraminidase inhibitors and we only really have one other <laughs> effective drug, but baloxavir, which of course uh, works more on RNA uh, production by the virus and shutting things off early. Um, I know uh, there's a study that uh, I don't know if you're familiar with any of the preliminary results of uh, oseltamivir and baloxavir, but there have been other combination studies already uh, published. Um, is this where we're sort of heading? I mean, uh, HIV, hepatitis C, I mean, gosh, viral diseases, we rarely want to treat with one drug except occasionally herpes viruses. So uh, um, wh where do you think this field is heading? Yeah, I think that's always been my my uh, biggest concern. My first project that I worked on as a fellow was uh, a combination of uh, the M2I inhibitors and the uh, zanamivir. So clearly, I think combination is the, the way to go. Um, I think that there's going to be a lot of enthusiasm to see the, uh, the flagstone uh, study, which is the study of uh, oseltamivir versus oseltamivir for plus beloxavir in the uh, hospitalized uh, patient setting. The combination uh, therapy has been shown back in the day when the M2s were active to reduce emergence of resistance, has also been shown with another uh, polymerase inhibitor, pomotavir, uh, in combination with oseltamivir to reduce uh, the emergence of uh, resistance. So presumably that should be the case uh, with uh, this combination that we will see with the flagstone. It's, the data will be presented in November at SWE, so we'll have to wait and see uh, what that shows. The big question will be, is there a clinical benefit to that uh, combination? Um, clearly these polymerase inhibitors drop viral loads very quickly. So, uh, um, you know, I think that that hopefully will lead to some benefit. Whether or not it does, uh, we'll have to wait to, to see uh, uh, about the data. Yeah, I think influenza is such a tough one because even when there was a trial, randomized controlled trial of trying to understand if hospitalized patients might benefit from oseltamivir, I think it was uh, the Ramirez and Alicia Fry study, um, you know, the patients on average got the drug at day five or six of illness and, and really the horse might be well out of the barn uh, on that one. So last words about resistance, let's pivot and return to the coronavirus. It's an RNA virus. It's obviously um, not a segmented genome like uh, influenza, but it is an RNA virus. Um, we are using an antiviral, uh, remdesivir. Um, uh, what's your sort of crystal ball in terms of just um, what we should be watching for, at least, uh, in terms of either significant mutations or resistance or other uh, effects of um, SARS-CoV-2? and potential antiviral resistance? So 
I think this is the million dollar question. If you think, we've seen tons of studies so far that have looked at immune modulators, antivirals, steroids, uh, uh, that have shown benefit or not um, for the clinical outcomes. We have not seen any virology from these studies. With the exception, there was uh, the lopinavir ritonavir study in China and the small underpowered study of uh, remdesivir in China that had some virology. Um, it's especially concerning for me because the way that remdesivir is being used is when the patient's discharged, the medication is discontinued. Well, I don't think, you know, we've learned with uh, antibacterials that if you give a short course of uh, antibiotics, that's a great way to induce resistance uh, in, in the patients. You still have a lot of pathogen present uh, with a declining level of uh, drug. So I think it's gonna be especially important to see what the virology uh, shows uh, from these uh, studies, particularly since both studies, the lopinavir, ritonavir, but more importantly, the uh, remdesivir study from China didn't really show much change in virology. Uh, and so if you continue to have high level viral replication in the presence of declining uh, levels of uh, drug, this is when you could uh, really see resistance emerge. Additionally, with the use of immune modulation, most other viruses, this has resulted in worse clinical course uh, and an increase in viral replication. That hasn't been the case with uh, dexamethasone. Um, that doesn't seem to be the case with things like mercitinib, um, where we just got the uh, top line data out of uh, it in combination of remdesivir. Um, so really, we, we need to better understand what's happening. If there is an increase in the viral load, some patients have incredibly high viral loads and the rate of uh, random mutations that may occur may induce uh, resistance uh, uh, just by chance alone. So definitely, I don't think we have the data to know uh, uh, where we're going with this. One perk with SARS-CoV-2 is it does have an endonuclease, so it does have a little bit of proofreading, so the rate of uh, mutation should be a little lower than some of the other uh, RNA viruses that we're seeing in the respiratory tract. Right. Uh, terrific points, uh, Michael. I, uh, and again, you really point out that there's so little virology that we've really seen to date. Um, and in fact, the, the little bit we've had, for example, for remdesivir, it doesn't look like it's a very potent drug <laughs> in that universe. So well, sir, it's been a little bit of a mystery to me uh, why it might work as, as well as it does, which you could argue is not a huge effect at any rate. But well, I think the other thing too, taking flu as an example, if you look at the neuraminidase inhibitors, they don't do a lot with virology either. There's about a half a log reduction um, compared to placebo. Um, and yet there's a pretty significant, if you look at cytokine production, uh, whatnot, there's a pretty significant impact for that small reduction in, in viral load. And one of the things that we may learn is maybe we don't really understand the uh, what we're seeing with the readouts from the nasal swab, uh, and maybe we need better uh, tests or, or better uh, ways of interpreting uh, the amount of virus that we're seeing and how the virus, the antiviral is impacting it. Well, this has been uh, really wonderful and, and, and highly instructive, Michael. I really want to thank you for spending the time talking uh, with us a bit about influenza and uh, the coronavirus, both of which I think will be uh, troublesome uh, over this coming fall, winter, and early spring. So Great. really appreciate your no problem. Time. And just to remind everyone, don't forget to get your flu shot. Now's the time uh, to get it. We've got to protect everyone. Beautiful. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Eisen, Dr. Allwater, thank you so much. 
If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.